Handoff, Damian Williams trying to get to the edge, breaks a tackle, 35, 30, Damian Williams, 20, stays in bounds, 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Kansas City! Damien Williams runs to immortality and Chiefs Kingdom get ready to welcome your champions. There we go. Hello and welcome to another broad Arrowheads Abroad podcast uh, with myself, Neil, and I'm joined by my usual partner in crime, Tomo. Hello. Hello, Tomo. And today we've got a special guest with us. Um, you know what, when we took the call and someone said to us, you know, I haven't done much podcast recently and what I really need is to get on some random European podcast with some Chiefs fans. Uh, well, who were we to say no to Yahoo senior NFL writer, Charles Robinson? Charles, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. I, I've missed doing podcasts. You have no idea. This is great. And this is, I like I, I've always said on, on our podcast, like it's part of the family. Feels like I'm with family members. So I'm happy to be here. Well, it, it, that was always like the impression us as listeners got as well, that the two of you, like you're so responsive on Twitter, both of you, like you're always interacting with people. Are you still having that interaction with people on Twitter, even since Terrors has gone? Yeah, um, in a sense. You know, I think I've, I've stayed off Twitter probably more this offseason than ever before. And I just think it was because um, it's, it's become such a toxic environment that I feel like even when I was tweeting out stories or, you know, had a comment on something in the NFL or tried to provide some context with people, I was still getting into fights with fans over things. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. What, where it kind of ended for me and where I really, really just sort of was like, all right, I'm going to check out of Twitter a large part of this offseason was um, the it was when the Browns signed Jadavion Clowney. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I told people here are the terms, whatever. And I said, they're they're going to have to you know, they're going to want to save some money here to roll into next year. I'm paraphrasing here, but I basically said, look, Sheldon Richardson could be in trouble. You know, this might be where they go to get the money. Mm -hmm. And I knew that was going to happen. I knew it for a fact. Like there was a reason why I was saying that was because I knew exactly what was going on. And yet, you you know, you get into arguments with people who are telling you, you don't know what you're talking about. And, oh, you just work for Yahoo. And like, <laughs> you know, this whole thing. And then a couple of days pass and Sheldon Richardson um, gets cut by the Browns. And I was just like, and, and my inclination was to go out there and be petty about it, to be like, you know, you need to stop this thought that, you know, we're out here saying things that we don't know what we're talking about. We do know what we're talking about. And I was just like, you know, this is too toxic. Like, I can't do this. I'm trying to help people understand what's going on. And instead they want to argue with me um, and treat you like it's not your job, that you're not talking to someone who is instrumentally involved in how team mechanics are working. And so I just thought for my mental health, you know, given everything obviously that happened with Therese passing away and I, I got into it with it, you know, there was one really nasty, and this, this also contributed to how I, I kind of took, stepped away from Twitter largely for this off season. Um, I got into it with a, with a really nasty supposed Chiefs fan who oddly enough, I think lives in Houston, um, 
who was invoking Therese. It was like saying like things like, you know, um, like stop like grifting on his name, stop using his name for, you know, because, you know, I would bring him up or talk about him. And that really upset me. Like that really, um, there's just no reason to, to be that cancerous on a, on, on a social media platform. And that was one of the ones where I was like, I thought to myself, like if I was near this guy right now, I'd probably physically hurt him because I was so upset. And, um, I was like, I can't do this. Like, I can't, if there are just nasty, awful people who are going to be on this platform and you got to kind of walk away from it a little bit. So, um, it's been an interesting, you know, experience. I've still tried to interact with chiefs fans, um, people who are, you know, follow the podcast and everything. Um, probably not as great at it, um, as I should be, but I promise you it's because I'm probably not looking at my notifications as often as I should. And, and things tend to get, you know, buried. And I will say this too. A lot of people reached out to me after Therese passed away. If I did not respond to you, I apologize for that. I, I can just tell you it was because literally it was hundreds and hundreds of direct messages or text messages or, or emails or, or tweets. And it was just, I, it was like hard to respond to everybody um, after that happened. So, um, but I heard everybody and I really appreciate, you know, the outpouring and, and I know Therese's fiance Ebony really has has enjoyed her connection to to the chief family what's well, such a sorry oh, man. I think it's just such a shame that you get those sort of interactions on Twitter because uh, I know for me and I'm probably speaking for Neil as well you and Therese uh, we had our notifications on alert for anything you guys said the second the podcast dropped it was it's like Christmas morning for us because yeah. like my my dog walks were like I said to Neil all the time I was like this is going to be a good dog walk because the podcast is out. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and what I think what set you guys apart for me was that you helped me understand the thinking behind some of the team's moves and what they might do and to not be shocked when they do certain things. Yeah. Like, oh, they're cutting a player that is a household name, so to speak. Why would they do that? But there's more to it. And it got to a position where... I was understanding things where I was looking at different moves teams were making and second guessing the reason. And Neil would do it as well because we'd talk about it. And then the podcast would come out and I'd be like, nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly what we loved about it. Therese was really um, in tune with the emotional state of Chiefs fans. Like that is, that is, you know, when you cover a beat um, and then you transition to a national beat, you definitely learn, you know, you, you have this familiarity with, the ups and downs, the in specificity of a fan base. So I, I made the transition a long time ago from covering the Lions. And um, I went from covering the Lions to being more of a regional NFL guy when I worked in Florida. And then, and then I, I moved to, the, to Yahoo. And, um, but I still understand just from those days. And I, I also grew up in Michigan, so I kind of knew that growing up in it. But when you're immersed in that environment, you, you understand a team and – the way a fan base absorbs something um, just differently. So when I cover the whole league here, I learn things when I'm reporting things or, or tweeting things. I, I learn unexpected things about how fans react to certain situations that Trez didn't have to learn about the chiefs. You know, he knew that. And, and, and I'll be honest here. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't have the, he understood the DNA of the chiefs in a way that I, you can't, unless you're, 
covering the team. So, you know, it was, it's a, it's, I remember the day that he passed away the next day, Brett and I, Brett Rader and I, um, the podcast producer and I were texting each other and he said to me, we're, we might've even been talking to each other on the phone, but he said, I am so sad for Kansas city. I'm so sad for these chiefs fans because he mm-hmm. just had such a close, really close knit relationship with, with chiefs fans. And, and, you know, it's just not a bond you can, you can fake or replace or really grow quickly. Um, it takes time. And, and, you know, he put in a lot of time doing that. Well, it's funny you should say about Twitter being so toxic because the one time I've seen it not be that was the night the news of Terrace's passing came out. And my timeline was just flooded with love for the guy. Yeah. And all people, so many people's stories of ways he'd helped them and ways he touched their lives. And we could add, hours to that as well i mean he came on with us twice he he didn't need to do that and same as you're doing tonight i mean we're a random european podcast about the chiefs you know we're not bigger picture we're nothing but for you guys to come and to take your time and come and talk to us it's just it's just fantastic but see you're not and and he was always really good at realizing um he like he loved talking about football he loved talking about the the team he loved talking to fans he loved um, you know, fans of the team, not, not just, you know, people who listen to the podcast or whatever. Um, and I, like I told people what was really great about him every once in a while, he would hit me up and be like, Hey, you should check out this Twitter account. And, and I'd look and it would be like somebody with like, you know, three, 400 followers who I probably wouldn't, you know, maybe I wouldn't <laughs> right? maybe I, I mean, you know, you just don't, cause you're trying to, you know, you're trying to have literally your hands on 32 different franchises. You don't, it's hard to absorb like everything, you know, it's hard to absorb it. And, and so you tend to grab for the bigger things because you're like, okay, these are the the easiest ones to kind of aggregate. He would, but he would stay connected to a lot of really informed football fans or informed, you know, people who follow the game who weren't in our industry. Um, And you don't have to be in our industry to be unbelievably excellent at understanding a team or analytics or how moves are made or absorbing and, and, and sort of analyzing information. And, you know, he, he had such an open mind about that with everyone. And I really, you know, I really appreciated that. He was, he was the genuine article and the outpouring of, of love for him was, was justified. Like if you knew him personally, he was personally who you heard on the podcast that that's who he was. I mean, that's legitimately who he was um, every single day. Um, I I can't quite say one good thing to come, but I I have my all juice hoodie on here. The scholarship for Howard university where he went, that has done an incredible amount of fundraising. And did I see you tweet that it had gone past six figures? It's get. I, I think by now it may have gone past six figures. Um, when I tweeted it, it was it was very close. Um, and so the reason why six figures matters is because it becomes an endowment. Um, so then the you know it's something that can be annually, you know, sort of the maintenance can be done annually and it can be you know um, doled out annually. And so that was really the 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 goal there. So um, I do have to get updated figures on on where it's at. But yeah, it's it's done very well. We've been you know really really pleased with it and his his fiance ebony um has just been fantastic at at really handling that and um it's you know like you said i mean it's hard to say that anything good comes out of it but that is something that i think would have meant a lot to him 
yeah. um, is, is giving back. And he was someone who, you know, he repped his school. Well, he repped, you know, Kansas city, he repped Detroit, like the things that were close to his heart, he definitely carried those. And, and that this being something that has come to fruition, I think he would feel really good about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, to, to borrow one of his phrases, there's no easy way to transition. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we did get you on to talk Chiefs and the AFC. So um, last w- week before last, I went back and listened to the post-Super Bowl podcast. Um, man, that was a tough listen on a number of levels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the one thing that kind of kept coming out to me was – the two of you talked about the Chiefs and adjustments and the fact that we just didn't we didn't adjust to how the Bucks were playing on defense. Like that they, they left five in protection, what, 92% of the snaps or something, I think it was. Right. Yep. We didn't adjust to how they were playing offensively. We didn't adjust to the refs and how they were calling the game. And we were still getting handsy even after we'd been called. How much of the Super Bowl loss was just the Chiefs shut the bed and like it, it's on us. And how much was the Bucks had a really good game plan and Todd Bowles really did deserve MVP? Um well here's the thing about adjustments that, that you you recognize as you sort of see teams unfold in the ensuing years of a Super Bowl loss. You start to realize personnel wise, particularly two years or three years away from that loss, when you look at the roster. And you're like, hmm, okay, this is how they, here are some of the things that they address talent-wise. And you realize that sometimes the reason why teams don't make adjustments is because they don't have the talent to do it. They don't have the individuals. It's, it's really easy to say, you know, oh, we should have, you know, thrown an extra person into coverage or um, we should have added, you know, and it, you know, let's go with a five-man defensive line or let's roll a defensive end inside so we can try to get, you know, some additional pass rushing from an interior position or, um, hey, here's this one, you know, weak spot that we could have um, really attacked a little bit uh, more uniformly than we did over the course of a game. Often teams don't make those adjustments just because they don't have the right players to make those adjustments. And, and again, I think that's what the offseason tells the story, you know. Yeah. And so I think with the Chiefs, we saw the offseason, at least for one core part of the, the, the team, tell the story we knew it was going to tell it was just like how are they going to tell it is it going to be through the draft is it going to be through trades or free agency and um so i don't i don't think it's necessarily coaching you know i don't think that you know and coaching is adjustments you know when you talk about adjustments often coaching but it is very much talent driven and so for example the offensive line um some of the struggles there and when we i think you know Charles and i really talked about hey this is a, an off season where they need to add some depth. Like there's got to be some changes there, you know, when it comes to the offensive line, because you can't find yourself in this position again, when there's injuries and attrition, um, where were they going to adjust? Like what adjustments were they realistically going to make um, that were going to um, not significantly alter um, the game plan? I mean, you know, could you go heavy, you know, two tight end sets and just you know try to throw everything you can at, at stopping the pass rush? Yeah, but that has implications. You know, that really significantly pairs down what that offense is and what it likes to do and takes away some of the big play potential. And, you know, there's just – so, so I would say from an adjustment standpoint, I think the adjustment that had to happen was more sort of the talent additions that needed to be made. And 
um, we saw the talent additions, particularly where you, you look at the offensive line. There's, I don't want to say a total retooling, but that is what it is. I mean, really, it's realistically, close, yeah. it's a pretty close to a total retooling. And frankly, you haven't, an, I think the Chiefs could possibly have maybe the best offensive line in football this year. It could be a top, you know, five, top three offensive line, depending on by how the some end of, of these, the season, by the end of the season, you know, how do these players gel? I think that's part of what's so important about this mini camp um, is that you have to start to see some traction from guys in camp and then they, they will leave camp knowing, okay, here, here's what I did well at. Here's, you know, not so great. I have a loose, you know, a good grasp of this. I have a loose grasp of that. And build on that into training camp. And then training camp is really where you start to see that chemistry um, take shape. It'll also tell the coaches pretty quickly um, kind of what mistakes did we make? You know, did we make some mistakes this off season? And now that we get some guys in here, um, a, a GM told me years ago, fit like 15 years ago, I remember going to a camp and seeing a GM and there had been someone who was really showing out and you know, I, I just kept, you know, I was like, oh, this guy's going to look so he's going to be great. He's going to be great. I remember it was, it was a linebacker they had drafted in like the middle rounds and he looked amazing. And he just kind of was like, he's like, look, he's like in minicamp, he said, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but um, it's a quote that I've always remembered, but I always have to paraphrase it. He basically said, if someone performs well, you put a pin in their name and you say, we'll see. He said, if someone performs poorly, you put a line through their name and you say, we'll see someone else. <laughs> like, like you you, you can eliminate guys in mini camps, you know, but you can't always count on how great they look or how much they look like they've absorbed something. It's just sort of like, okay, real football starts way down the line, but now we've sort of had something to be optimistic about to continue to work with them. You've got something uh, like a base, a baseline that's kind of high right. enough that you can work right. up from that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's, there's a lot of examples of this, like, you, you know, locker room examples. I, you know, I remember a scout telling me once he, they, um, he had, he had really gone to bat for a wide receiver that they had drafted and they went into mini camp and he literally told me, he was like the, it was like the first day of mini camp. I was like, Oh my God, I screwed up here. He's not going to make it. Like he's not, he's not, he, and he, and I said, how did you know that? And he was like, he, his personality in our locker room, I could immediately tell he was kind of going to be a, a wallflower like he was not going to be an alpha in that locker room which is what he needed to be and he immediately kind of receded from you know and and I said well can't you learn that can't he was like but just the way it went down I could see where this guy was going and ultimately he failed you know to to hang on as a player yeah um, going back to going back to sorry Neil going back to the offensive line and all the changes the Chiefs made we went into the draft process pretty glaringly obviously needing a left tackle and there was a guy out there who made it very well known he wanted to play left tackle did you think that the way that went down with the Chiefs and the Ravens the Ravens fulfilling the Chiefs biggest off-season need as an AFC contender rival was a little bit strange considering they didn't exactly pull the Chiefs trousers down for compensation um he didn't. <laughs> I mean, well, look, I, here's the thing. Like, um, I was a little surprised, as you said, you know, you're, you're talking about a team that's going to run up against the chiefs, right? I mean, that's the, that's the, um, and there are two ways that teams look at this. Um, sometimes that happens where a team says, Hey, this might be a good guy, but we know his deficiencies and we know how to attack him. Okay. 
So maybe, you know, you have the, and I can't speak to, you know, this being it, but I mean, if you're the, if you're the Ravens and you're saying, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to move Orlando Brown to the chiefs. He's going to become their left tackle. We know what his deficiencies are as a player. So we know how to match up with him. You know, there's a, that we can overcome whatever the matchup is. We have the book on this guy and, and he's progressed far enough along in his career that, you know, a, I don't think they didn't really have an opportunity, obviously, to play him at left tackle. He wasn't going to be a left tackle for them. They had their left tackle. Um, but, you know, it's not, a, it's not an easy transition, you know, so maybe they're thinking it's going to be harder than he really believes, like sticking at that position long term. Like he's, he's, this is where you're going to play forever now, not just in a stopgap measure. Um, you're right. I mean, it wasn't a fleecing. I expected more out of that. But at the same time, remember, there's, there's the financial aspect of it too. And, and that's like the Julio Jones thing it was interesting. A lot of teams kicked the tires on Julio Jones. A lot of them stopped kicking the tires as soon as they thought Julio was going to need more money. You know, they're like, we're not going to give up a bunch of draft assets, particularly what they want. And they, they had a big asking price um, and then pay the guy on the other side of it. I think that really depressed Julio's market. So were the Chiefs um, ever in that market? The Chiefs kicked the tires on them, but I mean, they weren't, they wasn't like a, like long, like drawn out, you know, you make the call, you know? And I, I think, frankly, I think probably, I mean, I don't, I can't statistically say this, but I'm telling you at least more than half the league called and said, Hey, what's, what are you looking for? Like, what's the, you know, could you just tell us exactly what the, the situation is and how dedicated are you to actually dealing him? And, and I don't mean just recently, I'm talking about the elongated whole offseason process of what was going to happen with Julio Jones. This was before the draft. I mean, you know, there was, um, this is something that's been percolating um, for a while for the Atlanta Falcons, but the, the Chiefs were never in it seriously enough to go, okay, you know, they missed out. That wasn't the case. We've it run is. a few campaigns at Arrowheads Abroad, haven't we, Neil? Um, going back to Jalen Ramsey, when the Chiefs were supposedly close, we ran a uh, Where's Jalen competition. We've done one for Patrick Peterson. Yeah. <laughs> All cornerbacks, believe it or not. There's, there's, there's a, there's a uh, trend here with cornerbacks, which we can go on to later. Yeah. Um, but we never really, yeah, I don't think the Chiefs fan base that I associate myself with ever really thought that the Chiefs were realistically in that. Maybe if the price was right, but it never felt like we were really, really pushing. I, I, you know, I would have thought it was serious. Like, say if they had gotten Taran Matthews' contract extension, like let's say they, they did the contract extension and all of a sudden you free up a bunch of money and you're like, then I'm like, okay, then, you know, that that to me – would have smacked of something a little more serious because I mean, uh, look, the cap is, um, I, I would say it's insult, you know, it's insolvent now. Like it's very, it's something that, you know, it's, I know some people say it doesn't exist. I wouldn't go that far, but I mean, it's very, it does. It, yeah, it does. I mean, it's, it's fluid. I mean, it's, it's the people say it doesn't matter because of restructures and, but what all restructures are moving money down the line. I mean, it's the cap hasn't changed so much that this off season, we're like, Oh my God, the Eagles are in cap hell. You know, the, the saints are in cap hell or whatever. No teams can still find themselves with cap problems. They're just more creative about, you know, moving the money um, down the line and none of them have enough rollover so that they can just all of a sudden take a one massive, it's very rare for teams to have enough money to make a bunch of mistakes and then not have it affect their roster 
you know, down the line. It's just, there's more money in this. Well, there should have been a lot more now, but obviously there's more money in the system. Now there's gonna be a lot more in 2023. Um, so teams are just being creative about um, how they're handling things too. And more players are signing one-year deals. Um, players are far more willing, I think now to take one-year prove-it deals, <clears throat> even, even not considering um, the cap spike in 2023. That motivated a lot of players to take shorter term deals because of the COVID rollback with the cap and all that. But um, I just think in general, players are like, I don't want this big long deal that gives you three years of control and gives me three years of money or two and a half years of money. Um, I want, let's just do shorter deals now. Dak Prescott, I mean, four year deal. I mean, he was, you know, like it's guys are like, let's just have shorter deals with more guaranteed money. And that's a battle that teams are going to have to face. But again, going back to Julio, if if the Matthew like if the Matthew extension had happened to the point where you know at a point where it would have created a lot of money and given them some flexibility, I could have seen it. But um, it just didn't. It, it wasn't the hot and heavy pursuit that um, I think it it needed to be. And I still think you know it's they, they still have a good they still have a good set there in terms of wide receivers. I would say. Um, you know, are there guys that they want to see some things like, you know, let's say Callaway. That, he's, he's got far more talent than what I, I really, he's got a, at some point I was like, okay, he's going to flourish. Like this is going to, you know, he's got all this talent he brings to the table, but there's something missing there. And there's a reason why, you know, he's had all this talent and he's got all these, um, um, he has the skill set that he has, but has not really, I think, fully come to, realize all that so is he the um, kind of player where these mini camps coming up he's the ones you want to be looking at and saying yeah is he capable of making progress like the the cornerbacks um hughes from the vikings and former first round picks that yeah have or had talent that just haven't developed it for whatever reason like brett veach seems to love these guys sure yeah well because those are guys those are guys that you know look there's a reason why players are drafted in the first round and they all, there's a reason why they always get another chance or sometimes two more chances because teams go, well, look, there's something just didn't click, you know, taco Charlton's a good example. You know, it's like this guy didn't click. Something didn't go right. Sometimes it's locker room chemistry. Sometimes the player is frankly, um, it takes some players a couple of years to realize the dedication that it actually takes to make it on the NFL level. You know, some players can, um, you know, develop a little bit further down the road, but sometimes it's a physical deficiency or it's just, um, I'm trying to think there was one guy in particular, um, man, I'm going blank here. There was an Ellis. It was a few years ago, LSU pass rusher, big, tall guy. Um, man, this is going to drive me crazy. I can't think of his name, (laughs) um, but okay. I'll just, I mean, look as a template, you'll get a guy who's you know, Hey, we'll get him in the NFL and he's going to add the 20 pounds to the frame that that's necessary for him to make it. And they'll get in the NFL and you'll be two or three years down the road and you'll go, man, he's just never really filled out. He's still rail thin. He's still getting pushed around and teams realize that's just not going to happen. Like he's not going to be able to do the Patrick Kearney meal plan where he's doing 12,000 calories a day, you know, to keep himself at the weight he needs to be at or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think there's an element of, of, you know, Brett um, and, and even Andy, you know, I think Andy likes to take chances on talent too. Like people think it's funny because John Dorsey goes other places. Like, oh, John Dorsey just likes to 
gamble on talent. No, Andy does too. Like they, mm-hmm. you know, just because it didn't work out between the two of them doesn't mean that that um, they didn't they weren't like minds when it came to gambling on some talent. And and you know, Callaway is one of those guys. But I would say with Callaway, like he's you know he may not make it. You know, when you when you're talking about potential cut downs at this point, this to me is sort of the year where you're like, all right, who's not you're not waiting anymore. And, and expending a 53-man spot on him if, if you don't feel like he's going to turn the corner. He's last chance saloon kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> and as far as kind of weaknesses in the roster then, I'm, we, we as Chiefs fans would probably say wide receiver two and cornerback are the two kind of looking at them, you go, there's not great depth there or not great options there. Is there anything else we're missing? Um. I'm worried about the pass rush. I got to be honest with you. Like, I, I think if there's something that even with Jaron Reed at it, even even with Reed, you know, um, I I think Reed's a really good addition. I do, but there's I think there's a thought process amongst some Chiefs fans who are like, well, this is what's going to jumpstart Frank Clark. Mm-hmm. Be careful yeah. there, okay? Mm-hmm. Be careful that the oh well, this is you know it's going to recreate what they had in Seattle. And, you know, I think the last years in Seattle, I think the regular season, he had like 13 sacks. Never been that player. Like, and not only that, it's one thing if you're not getting the sack numbers, but you're getting the pressure numbers. He wasn't a great, you know, a pressure player last year either. I don't even think he was like in the top 50 of defensive ends when it came to like pressure plays. Mm-hmm. So, or, 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 or total pressure percentages in terms of his snaps. And, you know, um, this is going to be an important year for Frank Clark because of contractually, this is the out year. Like, this is it. Like after this year, you're going to sit there and go, okay, well. You don't pay 21 million for someone to set the edge against the room. And you, (laughs) and you, and you can play with the June one cut, you know, and, and split up, you know, what, what the remainder of the cap hits that's there. And you're going to save quite a bit of money next year. So it's sort of like, you know, Frank Clark's got to be a better player this year. Like he's a good leader and I get all that. And I, I do like his mentality as a player, as a football player and what he brings to a locker room. Um, but you don't pay guys $20 million a year for six sacks and not being a top 50, like that's Jadavion Clowney. Yeah. Like that's, that is, that is why Clowney has floated around the way that he has, because it was like, geez, he's, the sack numbers aren't coming. The pressure numbers have not really bore out the last few years. He's not setting, you know, the, the edge against the run or attacking the run the way that he did efficiently before. And at some point you're like, why are we paying this guy? Like we can't pay. This is not a $20 million a year player. Let someone else, you know, take the $20 million a year plunge and then realize we're not going to get the bang for our buck that we need. So I think, you know, um, I, I'm okay. Like, I feel like the pass rush is fine. If Jaron Reed who, you know, Hey, he's on a one-year deal. Um, very, very good player. That's a tough loss for Seattle. Um, you know, if he and Frank Clark can, you know, recreate kind of what was going on there in Frank's last year, that's, you know, then, the, then I think you're fine, but there's not a ton of depth there either. Um, and I would say this, when you look at the Buccaneers um, down the stretch, what really fundamentally um, changed for them that made them a greater team than expected? It was the defensive line, the defensive line, the way that it played consistently. Um, I think that pressure that it created consistently changed the dynamic um, of what that team could do when it ran up against a team like the Chiefs. Now, again, you're talking, you know, their offensive line deficiencies, injuries, there are all these other things that you have to think about in that Super Bowl. But 
But I would say that the Buccaneers, as much as we talk about Tom Brady, um, the front end of that defense became something that was a handful for teams in the playoffs. And um, you kind of need the, you know, I feel like the chiefs have a lot going for them, but I, this can't be a year where, you know, I, I don't, I don't think unless there's somebody who really pops from the secondary, you know, amongst the court, maybe Deandre Baker. I mean, maybe someone realizes, you know, Thornhill, I think really has an opportunity to take a step forward. Um, unless someone really pops from the secondary, you need more from the front end of that defense. So to me, that's what I'm kind of looking at saying, you know, Hey, there's gotta be something here where you can affect opposing quarterbacks. Like all these off script guys are the same as pocket guys. You hit them enough, <laughs> you, you put enough pressure on them and they're going to make some mistakes. And, and I don't mean just turnovers, but they're going to throw a little quicker they're going to bail on plays a little quicker. They're going to check down a little more quickly later in games if they're getting beat up, you know. And and sounds I think like that's, Lamar. Sounds like Lamar Jackson. Well, one way to stop that pass rush then is to be able to run the ball. And I know you took a lot of shit from Chiefs fans last year <laughs> when you kept saying you're going to have to run the ball at some stage. Do you <laughs> feel any us. better about the ability to run the ball? Now? <laughs> um, I you know look, I I like. <clears throat> I want to see what McKinnon brings to the table. You know, like I, I think that um, the the top three uh, backs that you have, you know, Edwards Elair, I think is I'm waiting, you know, I'm waiting. I'm like, okay, I, the, I believe in him. I'm a big believer in him. Okay. Not. And I, you're not Neil's really. Friend. I'm not. Yeah, Neil's I'm, friend has been yeah, out since yeah. season. Like, he was a first round pick. You need your first round picks okay. to produce. I, I'm a believer in the talent. I will say that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Not the production. And, and, you know, you're right. Absolutely. You need them to be healthy. Right. Yeah. And you need them to, to produce and you need them to play with some toughness. And sometimes that means you're going to have to play through some injuries. Um, but then the top, know, the top when he came out of college was that his, one of his best assets was his receiving out of the backfield. And yet, he didn't really get used in that way. Any receptions he had were kind of dump offs as a last resort. And you were kind of expecting Andy to come up with these ingenious plays like he did with Kareem Hunt, where, you know, wheel right down the sideline. Thank you very much. There's a 50 yard gain. And you just never saw any of that. Yeah. Hunt's a better player than he is. I mean, honestly, like Hunt's a, Hunt, Hunt was a He's um, my favorite. He, you know, it was a loss. I understand, you know, the situation they were in when they caught him. Um, but he is definitely a person that, you know, with the Cleveland Browns, it, here, I'll tell you a story about Hunt. That's pretty interesting. Um, so the, the general manager, Andrew Barry was obviously in the Cleveland organization. Um, uh, when they went and, and got cream hunt, then, he, you know, Andrew Barry left, he goes to Philadelphia. Um, I think when he came back and his idea of a program, you know, I don't know that cream hunt fit that. Like, I really think there was some question about like, Hey, is he, is he going to be a guy from a character standpoint who's really going to be able to fit um, and, and stay in Cleveland, even if he does have a, a lot of dynamic talent. I think when Andrew Barry got back and really, you know, looked at it and they saw how things played out, he was like, man, this guy is a really, really, really good player. He rounded into the program. You know, I think he, he grew up a little bit going through that experience of losing his job. Um, when he was a high caliber player in Kansas city and um, I, he, he's a tough player. Like he is, he's just a really tough player. Like he doesn't, he doesn't have the unbelievable mind blowing speed. You know, there's just not when you, and, and I would even say when you compare just 
just this pure skill standpoint of Edwards Elaire to, to Kareem Hunt, Edwards Elaire actually is a more skilled overall athlete, but um, Hunt is just a better football player. He's a really good player for them. And so, um, yeah, you, you, the, the transition for running backs that I think is underplayed is the overall toughness it, play, it, it takes to be a consistent good performer at the NFL level because you get beat up so much. Like, yeah. yeah, and guys just have to play through that. You have to play through a lot of injuries as running backs. Hmm. Okay, right. We've got three and a half minutes left on our Zoom call here, as it tells me. <laughs> so, <laughs> a quick, quick run around the AFC West. Did anyone do enough in the draft to stop the Chiefs winning the division? I, okay, the Broncos, look, the Broncos have quarterback issues. I don't think that's going to change. You know, I think this we, is we could spend something. 40 minutes talking about why the hell they've still got. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's just not, you know, I don't, I don't, the Broncos, I don't, it's not, that's not a turn the corner team. No. no. Um, the, the Raiders, I, I think the Raiders did that. They had a poor off season. Okay. And I, and I think one of the things now they have a poor off season, a poor couple of years, um, drafting that that is not great because you're already looking at some pretty good draft picks who could potentially not be, you know, Cleveland Farrell may not be a starter for the Raiders, you know, come this season. That's a, I mean, oh my God. So um, the, the, the Raiders are still a mess. Okay. There's just a lot to be done there. So no, um, the Chargers, you know, the Chargers, I think had a really, you know, they had a good off season, but particularly, um, I think Brandon Staley is a very, very good um, defensive mind. I, I think he was a lot of what Vic Fangio did well. I think Brandon Staley had a lot more to do with that than we realized. And he's a connector with players. So, but he is a new coach. So, you know, you don't know. Like, we have to kind of wait and see how is he managing everything else on the table that a head coach has to deal with that is far different than a coordinator. And remember, he wasn't even a coordinator for very long. So, um, I think the coaching dynamic change to me says the Chargers, it's still a process. They're still building. And, you know, Justin Herbert, like, let's see, year one's great. But again, the NFL teams do nothing but figure out quarterbacks pretty well. And this idea that he's just going to explode and, and continue to be this massively dynamic player was in year one. There still could be some some bumps coming in that timeline. So do I don't you expect the- him to progress because they did draft offensive line like they've got a good offensive line now yeah gonna have time behind it yeah well i mean look they're they're obviously when you know you got your quarterback what do you do you strengthen everything else around him so they've, they've gone to work at that as you said the offensive line was a big thing that they had to address um you know i think you know running back i look there there's there's no doubt that they're still building around him but i don't think it's a challenger i don't look at them and say wow you know the chiefs really i look at the chiefs and i'm like hey if, if the secondary, if they can get some development and they have someone really take a stride forward in the secondary and Frank Clark and Jaron Reed are healthy, consistent, and, and can really roll up the, the pass rush more significantly, this idea that the Chiefs, you know, a 20-0 season, you know, um, is it possible? The Chiefs are really, really good. I mean, they're a great team. And, and Patrick Mahomes is, as long as everybody's healthy and, you know, this – Nothing changed, you know. I think if anything, you learn something. So, and I really like that offensive line. Love the talent on that offensive line. So, I don't want to. I don't want to blow. You know, I don't want to say, oh, blow it up and say that she's oh, they're going to be a twenty-zero team. But I think that the, the 
anything I, we said this last year, anything less than the Super Bowl is like a, a disappointment. It's like a, you know, that hasn't changed. Still like, I don't think that's be. changing. Still the team to beat. I don't I'll think it's changing. I'll take we, 20 and 0. We are at- there we go. Okay, so the Chiefs 20 and 0 then is uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's unlikely, but not impossible. I mean, I Duncan, who's also on the Arrowheads Broad, he had a bet last year on an undefeated season, and he got a good run for his money, but I didn't think he got great odds. He got like 25 to 1 or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's just so difficult to do. Yeah, I'm. I mean, it's you know, and remember, um, you're adding. You know, it's the 17 game schedule instead of this. We're no longer going. Hey, 19 and 0. No, 20. Now it's 20 and 0. Now you got to win 17 regular season games instead of 16. I'm. A, I when I bring up the 20 and 0 thing, I'm just saying. Well, that's my way of saying. Like I think, to me, when I look at the AFC. This is exponentially like this is the best team in the AFC. It is. It's the best built team um, from a veteran standpoint. It's it's an immaculate team um, from a veteran standpoint. And again, to me, fundamentally, I'm about I'm about offensive line protection. Like once you get past the quarterback question, obviously, I'm about offensive line protection, and I'm about defensive pass rush. I think from offensive line standpoint, it's exquisite, particularly if. Uh, Laurent Duvernay Tardif comes back. Yeah. If yes, mm-hmm. if he comes back and plays well, um, you know, I think you've, you've got that. That's like that's like a, a signing. Let's say that's like a you what, sign what about a guy Kyle Long then because Kyle Long, a year off football, absolutely. Kyle Long is, I was going to bring him up, and just have a, we didn't talk about him earlier. Like Kyle Long's another guy that, and I think it's an important camp for him, um, as he kind of gets himself, you know, gets his legs back under him. But he took a, a year out because of injuries, he's really beat up, but he was he was particularly when he was healthy really really good player um maybe not quite still an all pro level player maybe not like a you know pro bowl level player but a really good player and so um you know that's still a guy that i think um could add something here too and the sixth round pick actually that they took um trey smith uh, trey smith to get out of tennessee yeah uh, he's got something like he does. He has something. And I think he could be a really good depth player for them he's this nasty. year at guard. He's nasty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He said, I think he could be a really good depth addition for them at guard. Um, Tooney, I love, you know, um, I, I think that, you know, uh, you go and you acquired your left tackle as a, as a trade. You know, I think that um, I, I really like that offensive line. And if it gels, um, you know, they have a chance to be a very, very, very good top tier, you know, if they can uh, run the ball, how do you stop them? Yeah, and and again, that's I know Chiefs fans don't want to hear that, but I, it does matter. Like here, here I'm going to tell you something. I was talking to a, a GM last year um, in the play uh, when the playoffs came around. We were talking about the Browns, and they were just like, "Dude, this team, like they are so good at running the football. Like when they're on and their backs are healthy." It's, it's, and, and you just didn't hear people really, particularly in this era, talk about how difficult it was to not be dominated by the run and how frustrating that was in this era of football because teams are so often grasping for turn and run linebackers, not head down like I am digging in and just thumping at the line of scrimmage linebackers. Everybody wants the turn your hips and run with the tight end linebackers now, right? And so, um, 
you know, for the Chiefs to be able to add that element, I think would be a really big deal. Uh, as I said, I'm still, you know, a little bit nervous about the the pass rush and seeing if it can be what it needs to be. Um, but I think if it is, I I worry less about the secondary. So um, I would say that those are those are things they need to get done. I really would like to see them get a Matthew extension done because I think I, I know cap wise. Are they at the moment? Do you know? Um, I don't know, like if they're still like, I, here's what he's I he's tweeting a lot of kind of vague, <laughs> passive aggressive, you yeah, know, yeah. They, they don't value me shy kind of. Right. But yeah. He deletes a lot of tweets though, Neil, remember? I got into a Twitter fight with him. Right, over, yeah, over, yeah. Like, that was one of my famously dumb moments where I was like, <laughs> hey, all the safeties aren't going to get paid. And, and I just picked the wrong safety. It was Earl Thomas I had to worry about. <laughs> it wasn't Teran Matthew. Um. So, uh, yeah, I, I will say this. The traction for that extension, I believe, really comes in, in post, like, it's, it's going to be July, okay? So when July 1st rolls around, you know, they're going to basically have that month. That's where I think teams really start to press if they want to get an extension done. Brett Veach, though, it, here's what it's going to come down to. Brett Veach is going to sit there and he's going to go, hey, I just created all this cap space that we needed really quickly. Um, I have a, a solid little amount of cap space now. Do I want to add more to it and then roll that cap space forward? Which is what a lot of teams, like a really good front offices, like to try to figure out how they can roll more cap space forward. And so I think that's the, the inclination here is they're not going to create cap space to add anybody. They're going to create cap space because they're going to go, this will be awesome when we roll 15, 16, $17 million into uh, 2022 and, and the cap's start... already going up 20 million, mm -hmm. 30 million. And the cap's like already, already, you're going to have additional cap space there. So it, it, you know, it's just, and remember though, you're also Patrick Mahomes is really going to start to hurt soon. Mm -hmm. And just in terms financially, <laughs> really that's something yeah. that they have to think, start to do. You think, think players, you'd like to think that Tyron Matthew understands this, right? Like he's, he's been in the NFL long enough, or do you think he's kind of, Slightly concerned about number one in terms of wanting to get his deal done, or do you think he understands and there's a conversation that may have happened that, look, it might be July? He's at a stage of his career where um, you start to think about, okay, like if like this is, this is where I'm going to get my last big deal, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I say last big deal, I mean like, you know, if he, if he wants three years of whopper money. 15 you know, million a year? This is... He's going to be top shelf. Like I would put him, I, and, and I would only say that even despite the age, when you talk to teams that face the Chiefs. So when I was voting for All Pro, um, he was a guy that teams told they were like, he is hell to deal with. They're like, he is the extremely difficult player to have to game plan for. They're like, he causes so many problems, and and you know he landed. I don't. Did he even make the Pro Bowl last year? I feel like he yeah, made the All Pro, he but he didn't. Yeah, but he made All Pro. And, yeah. and the reason why I made all pro was because, and I'm just telling you is because teams are like, this guy is a, a maniacal player and he's really, the way they use him is extremely difficult mm -hmm. to deal with. And, and Tran Matthew knows that. And so it's, it's, and he, and this is who he is though, guys. He's a, he's a, he's great. It's, I compare him to Steve Smith. Like to me, they are the same guy. They just played opposite sides of the mm -hmm. football. They're tough as hell. Um, you know, they, people would, would knock them here and there for this or that, and yet they would always exceed, and it was because of their mentality as people. 
well, they would bring that <laughs> like to he's the very much heart on the sleeve as well, though, isn't he? Like, he, yeah, he doesn't seem to leave you in much doubt of what he's thinking. <laughs> no, he's an emotional guy, and and you know that's but that's also part of what plays into. It. I'm Steve Smith was a extremely emotional guy, like he was, like everywhere he went, he was going to tell you his opinion of players. He was going to tell you the opinion of schemes and coaches and guys on his own team. And like, he just, he didn't, he'd tell, he would tell you his opinion of you. He would tell you his opinion of your question. <laughs> like he was <laughs> like, that's the kind of guy he was. But <clears throat> you, when you would talk to players who would play against them, they'd be like, this guy's a bitch to play against. Mm-hmm. Like he's just, it's the worst. Cause every play he's going a hundred miles an hour and you just, you hate to and but that's the way Matthew is. So, you know, you deal with it. I I I would say that the only way that an extension doesn't get done is I mean, they really gotta have a plan. They really gotta have a plan and they really gotta have an idea of someone that I think is already on the roster that they're kind of like, okay, we kind of feel like we have someone who's gonna be able to step into that role for us because if he goes to free agency. A, a small a team with a small Super Bowl window is is really going to pay him or someone that goes we have a young secondary and we need a guy like this to come in and really show people what your mentality has to be in practice what your mentality has to be on the field every day and is smart and knows everything and we can move them around almost like um, when the Packers signed Charles Woodson you know, years and years ago when everybody was like, you know, Woodson won't get the top tier money. Woodson got the top tier money because they were like, hey, he's still got something left. He's playing corner. We can move him to safety. There's a lot of things we can do down the road. A team could look at Teran Matthew that way and, and pay him. So he, he would, it's interesting to kind of hear him know what his set of feelings are right now, knowing that I, I really think if he hit free agency, he's still going to get some money in free agency. Like it's going to happen, but I could see why he would want to finish. I, you know, would want to finish his career in Kansas City and not have a tough time at the negotiating table, um, trying to get that money. Anyway, I think you can see it seems a no-brainer, doesn't it? And we don't seem to have anyone ready to step up into that oh, role. Yeah. We've got Legarius Sneed, who we got very, very lucky on, in my opinion, hitting on. Um, considering if we didn't have him, I know Tyron's not necessarily a cornerback, so to speak, especially outside, but. We don't have a fat lot in that secondary after after Snead and Fawnhill, really. Yeah. Um, it feels like a no-brainer to just get that deal done. But I imagine it's a bit of jostling from both sides. You're talking about guys that you would really they would really have to be confident. Yeah. Those guys are both going to take big steps forward, you know, to to cover for a player of Matthew's caliber and you know, some of what he brings to the locker room. So I I, you know, it's not it's not unprecedented, you know, to sit there and go you know, particularly cap wise and having a quarterback who's always going to be on a top level deal, you have to start to figure out where are we allocating money to? And, you know, I mean, maybe you're sitting there and you're going, Hey, if the pass rush isn't, you know, this isn't right, we're going to have to do something to go fix this. And how are we going to make that happen next off season when any of the pass rushers that are currently on one year deals are going to free up. If any of them have monster seasons, teams are going to shovel money toward pass rushers right now. Cause it wasn't a great pass rusher market last year. And um, I mean, look at what Bud Dupree got, you know, with, with the Titans and Bud Dupree's a good player. His game's got holes though, you know, and, and yet, I mean, he got a lot of money. So um, you, you, 
it's all about, you know, that future planning and maybe you don't know how they necessarily feel about, you know, some of the guys that are already in the room now that maybe they see development in and then other areas of the team where they're like, we might have to shore this up after this year. And that's a reality. So we need to save some money or be ready just to have, you know, that hole. I think that's where we were surprised. We didn't take, we didn't take an edge like until uh, Kando. I think we were quite surprised. We didn't take one earlier with, with the Frank Clark and getting out after this year, it would have given a guy this year earlier a chance to develop and then take that role going into next year. It was quite surprising. We didn't I didn't think, make I didn't think it was a great pass rush class, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I mean, you know, you know, it's obviously there were first round picks, but I, I didn't, I didn't think it was unbelievably dynamic. And some of those guys honestly had some warts um, who, who got taken red flags as, you know, like character flags, stuff like that. So you know, I, you know, there's maybe there's some of that. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately for teams, I think part of the reason why you saw them attack the offensive line they did so aggressively and they doled out a lot of money um, is because it's a lot harder to go get offensive linemen now, particularly in the draft, because even good ones, you get a lot of guys who don't spend time with their hand on the ground spend a lot of times, you know, the vast majority of their college career and pass pro, um, you know, don't, I would say that maybe there's not a lot of, you know, you worry about pass pro offensive linemen in college are not always considered the toughest customers. Okay. And, you know, that's why you see like Quinn Miners goes to the senior bowl and he just looks like, you know, a bully, you know, he looks like he's nasty and he wants to just beat guys up. And all of a sudden teams are like, oh my God, we want that guy. He's we really love. because they don't see, I, I really truly feel this. They're seeing the dynamic of the college games changed. It's altered the way offensive linemen are setting up, you know, consistently throughout their careers. And so you don't necessarily see offensive linemen who just want to kill the other guy constantly. And so when they do see it, Hey, you took a year off. Hey, it's a D3 school. No problem. Like, we'll, we'll still draft you, you know, with a pretty decently high pick for, you know, where you're coming from. And we'll compare you um, to, you know, Ali Marpet, who, I mean, some really good offensive lineman. You're just going to, like, that's the parallel you're automatically going to make because this guy shows up and he's, you know, beat, beaten on guys in, in senior bowl practices. When teams outside of the Chiefs division are future planning, do, do they have an eye on the Chiefs as well? So say like the Bills, for example, drafted two pass rushes early. Is that just considering their division or is that we've got to get past Patrick Mahomes? Does it I, I don't, I, I mean, like they're, when it's outside of the division, it's you, I think you think about it a little less, you know, like there is some thought process of like who, you know, like who's going to be the bully on the block we're going to deal with year in and year out and, and everyone's cognizant of Mahomes and the chiefs. But I think that's more, everyone knows where quarterbacks are going. And particularly if you're the bills, you have one of those quarterbacks. You're like, we have a guy who does off script stuff. We have a guy with a big arm. We have a guy who's big, you know? And so I think it's more of just, you know, I, I don't know. I like, let's be honest forever teams have like Dan Marino there were teams are we got to draft because Dan Marino we got to get to Dan Marino because he's throwing for 4,500 yards a season um this is a guy that you know we're going to have to deal with at some point in the playoffs like if you're the 49ers you were thinking about hey we're probably going to see Marino in the in the Super Bowl it just didn't happen 
you know, but if you're the Broncos, you're like, we're going to run into them um, in the, in the AFC playoffs or, you know, whoever um, it's always kind of been that way. So I, I would, I would say in terms of really thinking about dealing with Patrick Mahomes, it comes more down to being in the division, knowing the quarterback you need to compete with a quarterback of that caliber. And so I'll give you an example. Um, like David, David, well, <laughs> look, David Tepper. So we come into this offseason, right? David Tepper. And, and I had people around the league who were like, they're getting rid of Bridgewater. Like the Bridgewater's, and I'm like, after one year, they're like, yeah. And I'm like, what's going on? They're like, Tepper's off. Like Tepper, David Tepper, is, he, he, I think, part of it being from the financial sector um, being cutthroat to make billions and billions and billions of dollars in the financial sector, you identify pretty quickly what something is and what it is. And, and from what the people told me, it was like Tepper knew that's not, I'm not going to beat these other quarterbacks with this guy. I need one of those guys. Like I, the guys that I don't want to put, you know, Teddy Bridgewater up against, those are the guys I need. And that's why when the, you know, Deshaun Watson, it looked like, this guy could potentially be available. The Panthers were one of the first teams to call, um, you know, before all, you know, everything hit the fan with Deshaun Watson in Houston. They were the first teams to aggressively hit Houston and be like, we want to acquire this guy. And that's why you saw the reports come out that all oh, Carolina looks like they might be the front runner. Like, I think this was like January or February. Um, it was because David Tepper was like, what I got to give up, I'm going to give up to go get that guy because I don't want to play against that guy. I need that guy on my team. And so I think everyone is approaching it now, you know, with, with so many young quarterbacks who look very elite. Everyone except Denver. What you're saying there just makes me more baffled about how Denver approached the off season, because I mean, you, they were drafted what, nine, was it? Oh, um, when they passed on fields. They, they passed. Mac Jones went to the Patriots about fourteen or something. Because we we were having a draft off on draft night and trying to pick picks against each other. And I, I was sure Denver would take a quarterback because why wouldn't you? You've got Drew Luck. I mean, Drew Luck and Teddy Bridgewater aren't the answer to Patrick Mahomes' question. And yeah, I mean, it's look, it's a it's a legitimate question. I mean, I don't, I don't. Um, I have not had that conversation yet with, you know, the, the person who I usually talk to, I'm closest with there. I'm curious, you know, to see what the thought process was there. I can tell you this. I did have a conversation with them about Aaron Rodgers <laughs> and they definitely felt like Rodgers. Has really... anything gone on your phone there yet in the last hour? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, you know, that's a good question. Cause I have a loose pocket and, and that's the worst thing you can have, um, when you're expecting, uh, just before before we started messages. recording here, we were chatting and uh, Charles was going, well, I'm just waiting for news on Aaron Rodgers here because, you know, something could happen at any time. It, yeah, he's a he's a he's a beat unto himself. Aaron Rodgers. Is, so, uh, no, nothing. I just checked my phone. No, nothing. Uh, I don't. Um, you know, I mean, we'll if see. he ended I, uh, up in Denver, would that make Denver a contender? No, I think they would still be, I don't think it would be like the Peyton Manning effect where all of a sudden, and you have to remember that team in Denver was pretty well built by the time Manning went there. And it was part of why Manning went there. Like, you know, I remember I had a conversation with Manning uh, at the Manning Passing Academy. Yeah, it would have been two summers ago, obviously, because I didn't, they didn't have it last year. And uh, we talked about his process of how, you know, he, he created that free agent tour that he went on 
and they checked off so many boxes. Denver's not a box checking team right now. There's a lot of, so a lot of questions in Denver right now. And so, um, and remember if you're acquiring Aaron Rodgers, you're giving up assets to get him. And then you're going to put a, put a contract. You're going to give him a contract that has already been, the table has been set by the Packers um, because they've already had, they've already made offers to him. So he already knows what the astronomical, yeah, he knows his value, at least to the Packers. He's going to expect that's his value to where he, wherever he goes. So you know, a better, a better scenario for him would have been the 49ers, but I'm going to tell you right now, the fact that anyone in his camp ever believed there was an outside chance in hell that he landed with the 49ers who just beat the Packers to get into the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and Oh, by the way, that Matt LaFleur was going to be okay with his buddy, Kyle Shanahan coming in and taking the quarterback that holds the key to his job, like, you know, stature the next couple of years it was never going to happen in a million years. So the Rogers thing is really interesting. I'm telling you, it's a, it's a, there is a differing dynamic that occurs in, in a franchise when something like this happens, because you have coach, a coaching staff that sits there and goes, we want our jobs. And we know with this guy with 12, we're going to be look 10 and seven, 11 and six, like we're going to be, we're going to be a team that's in the mix and we're going to have jobs for a few years here. We're definitely, we lose that guy. Jordan love, we could go five and 12 and we could be fired in a year, you know, and, and you could have like a house cleaning situation. Um, the, would, that the, be, would that make you inclined to throw more money at him than you ought to? Um, like, does that push I, you into making a bad decision I mean, if you're a coach, you know, like, yeah, you pay him, you know, (laughs) yeah, the coaches don't really care. Uh, The coaches don't care about money. Really. They don't really care about money. It's the front office that cares about money. Like the coaches care about retention, you know, just give me my players. I don't care. You know, show me the baby. I don't care about the labor and, um, you know, front offices. And that's why, you know, in green Bay, I can tell you like coaching staff, 1000% is kicking and screaming over, you know, if they were to lose Aaron Rodgers, I think the front office, um, I think they've realized it wouldn't be great, you know, but I do, I think that's where all the complication is. It's the front office and Aaron Rodgers, and, you know, the, there's some pride there that I think is going on in the front office and, you know, there's a money aspect of it. And then I think there's sort of a, I don't want to say an apology, but there has to be some things that happen with that front office that make it clear to the public that they're sort of apologizing to Aaron Rodgers for how he's felt like he's been dealt with in that in that if, organization. If they were to trade him, what do you think the price would be? Well, supposedly when you talk to teams and you're like, what do you like, how are you shaping up the market? They'll tell you that they're going to want three firsts, you know, that they're right. going to sit there. Yeah. They're going to want three first round picks for them um, because they're going to look at essentially what, what did the Rams, the Rams surrendered. A, I mean, it was insane what the Rams did to bring in Matt Stafford. I mean, you're sending multiple picks and Jared Goff, and who honestly is a, he's a serviceable quarterback. He's not great, but he's a good quarterback. He's, he's, you know, I think he's going to be okay in Detroit. Um, Rogers, even at 37, you know, that's going to be the asking price. Now I asked, um, I did a, a story where I had asked four current general managers, two former general managers who are still in front offices, shape it up for me. Like, what is the realistic value of this guy? And they all said two firsts or like two firsts. 
and um, you know, two firsts and maybe, you know, a player thrown in or like a middle round pick or whatever. But um, they said, and they, they said that the damper on that is the contract because you're giving up assets and you're signing them to the long-term deal. And that's actually what a GM brought up to me that I said to you about the Packers quote unquote, setting the table is I had a GM who said to me, um, you know, part of the downside of this is you don't really get to negotiate with him. He's already, nego- you know, he's already had money thrown at him. So he already knows in his mind financially what that's going to be. You didn't give him that number. Another team gave him that number and you hate to be in that position where the other team already put the dollar figure in his head. So that ship has sailed. So, uh, Especially when you've uh, given up two or three first round right, picks. It's right. not like you can let him walk. <laughs> right. You're the, paying that guy. The three first round picks, like people have to understand, and, and this is particularly when you talk to GMs, that, that they all agree on this universal. Three first round pick guys are young guys. They're 10 year guys for you. They're, they're, hey, we are, this is our cornerstone for 10 years. It's a decade guy we have here. Um, Sean Watson, pre. Right. Deshaun, pre, pre everything, Deshaun Watson. And, you know, um, particularly in the draft, that's why you see teams give up three first round picks to really get their quarterback is because not only are you getting the net benefit of your 10 year guy, you're getting the net benefit of the contract that sucks. You know, you're getting, automatic right out of the gate, eight years of control, you know, four years, the contract, the fifth year um, option. And then, you know, maybe three franchise, not real, you know, look, they're not really going to do three franchise tags, but at least two. Okay. So you're getting seven years of control at the money that you want and, you know, and then a, and a, and a 10 year guy. So um, that's what really makes it different when you're dealing with a 37 year old. I will say this about Rogers. One thing that surprised me, the pictures from Hawaii, and I know he had said this to Kenny Maine that he was 15 pounds down. He is in good shape. Yeah. He's in really good. I've seen that dude in the locker room before. He looks, he's peak right now. He's definitely tuned up. So he's, whatever he's doing physically, I know he said he's, he's read through the TV 12 thing and he's, you know, starting to really actually take that seriously in terms of wanting to play deep into his forties. He might really be about that. He might be on the Tom Brady timeline where he's like, hey, I can still do this. for." You could get kind of five years out of him. That would put him at 42. That's where Brady is at the moment, isn't he? He's yeah, and he's, and he's got it. Trust me, he's got a better arm than Brady. Like he's got, you know, that is one attribute that um, maximizes him over Tom is that Tom's had, uh, you know, through the course of his career, Tom's had a pretty good arm. He had a good arm. But he's, you know, Rogers has an elite arm and – um. I've, I mentioned this a few times on the podcast where a lot of these guys learn when they come in how much I think it's different now because kids are learning this at a far earlier level. But 15 years ago, you know, Breeze and Rogers were finding out, hey, my core mechanics, my core, my core strength made my arm a lot stronger, you know, and that's something I wasn't working on in college. It wasn't something I was working on in high school. I get to the NFL level and I become so much stronger in my core. Man, my arm, I picked up some zip in my arm and you know so now but now i mean it's crazy it's a it's it's a quarterback factory in the world now every every kid knows every single thing like they're peaked out i feel like when they're hitting college now they're already on the weightlifting plan they're on the you know core you know strength plan they're on all these different things so so what what you see in college is essentially what you're going to get from a physical standpoint as in that there's no real room apart from aging a little there's no real yeah. room to grow there. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
look, there's, I always call it man strength. There's a difference between being a, a, you know, 22 year old with elite strength and being a 28 year old, 29 year old with elite strength, who, by the way, has been beaten on, you know, like you, there's a, it's, it's weird to say this, but it is true. There is a certain kind of strength that players gain after years of traumatic collision. Like you would think, oh, it breaks down their bodies and they get worse. They do in some ways, but they also learn pain endurance. Okay. And um, the ability to endure pain and, and be as strong as you can possibly be in the NFL is a different kind of strength than just being strong when you come into the NFL. Pain endurance is a huge, huge, unmeasurable aspect of NFL players that plays out over the course of, of players' careers. I always, I, I always tell people a story. It's like, I remember when I was in high school and I played basketball in high school and one day the shop teacher showed up to play against us. And I'm thinking, Hey, this is like, like in his mid forties. I'm gonna whoop this guy's ass. He had a level of strength <laughs> in his mid forties. that let me tell you was uncommon, you know, and we were, he was smaller than me, but I was like, there's a toughness to this guy. <laughs> like, I think there are players that, you know, you get into your, your latter twenties, there's a toughness to you that your strength is just different at that age than it really is when you're younger and just strong. Okay. Um, we've probably kept you long enough now, because I think you've probably <laughs> got a good hour now. <laughs> That's uh, good. That's but no, it's just come up with the meeting lending 10 minutes. So we've been going 70 minutes now. Um, <laughs> you are coming back with a new podcast, aren't you? Because I, I listened to the the tribute one to Terrace, um, and you did say at the time you are looking is that, is that kind of down the track? Yeah, we're still, um, it's been a more complicated process. You know, we, we were, we're, we're in the midst of, you know, a potential sale here as a company, you know, from Verizon to an equity firm, Apollo. And so it's, uh, it, 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 in a weird way that affects, you know, things like the podcast and other things, because you're, you're in development with, you know, honestly, some people at Verizon who aren't going to work with you anymore. Um, so you know, there's some of that that's playing into that, you know, it's something that I think we thought maybe we wanted to launch earlier, but some things weren't quite right. And I just, you know, Brett and I both decided we're like, Hey, if it's not exactly where we want it, like, let's not do this where we we're trying to, you know, relaunch it and then get it where it needs to be down the line. So there's still things, you know, from a mechanic standpoint that we're working on, um, you know, from a hosting standpoint, you know, it's, I, uh, Therese is a remarkably you know, difficult person to um, obviously, you know, to, to move into another direction and um, you, you can't replace them ever. You can't replace the chemistry you have with them ever. And so um, I think there's going to be, even when the podcast launches, there's going to be some elements of, you know, just working with different people and, um, you know, we'll probably not have a, a consistent, you know, um, co-host, like we're, we're going to bring on some different people and, you know, sort of see how things go, but, um, maybe one week, just give me a show. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, it's, you know, I would love to get it launched, um, before training camp starts or like leading into training camp, that would be ideal. Yeah. Um, but you know, we'll see, we'll see where things really, where, where they shake out. It's, it's, I miss it. I'm itching to do it. As you can see, I'm long winded and, and it's, I really enjoy doing these and, um, you know, I know Brett really misses it a lot, but, um, it was, it was something where I, I can't even really, ex like, I can't even explain. It was like 
like imagine it's like Trez and I were swimming to this other shore together, you know, and this other shore was all these plans we had and these changes and what we were going to do and how we wanted it to go. And, um, and we're swimming stride for stride. And then all of a sudden he's not there. And I turn around and I can't see that shore, but I can't see the shore I left either. That's kind of how this is, you know, it's, it's, and all of a sudden you're in the middle and you're going now, what, what do we do? Like what happens? What just happened there? And well, how does this change things? So that's something that, uh, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of working through a little bit, but I know, I know you guys miss them. I miss them. Um, I'll, I'll miss them the rest of my life. It's still surreal. Um, you know, it's, this will be my first preseason in quite a few years where he and I aren't, you know, commiserating and talking to each other. I'm going to have, I'm going to have to go through a training camp tour where I'm not texting him about, you know, Hey, how you doing? What's going on? Hey, you were in Detroit today. What was that like? What'd you think of this guy? Or, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a really surreal situation, but, um, it's been, it's been great to see what he added to so many people's lives. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's something that I think he'll, he'll always be a part of all of us. You know, everybody who really enjoyed working with him or listening to him or getting to know him, they'll always be a guy they'll, they'll think of. Uh, anyone who hasn't listened to the tribute podcast that you did, I, I would implore you to do it. Even if it's just for Charles's story about playing cards in Miami. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, the two-minute montage at the end. So I, I was, my wife was at the dentist and I'd given her a lift because she was getting like uh, an implant put in her tooth or something. And I was sat outside in the car listening to that and people were walking past that I had tears streaming down my face, which was half <laughs> laughter and half sadness. And the amount of funny looks I got just sat there listening to that. But the story was fantastic. I'll, I'm not going to get Charles to go into it, but go and listen to it. It, it was a fantastic tribute to a great man, and a, a, just a, an absolute joy to listen to. Well, we got we're running out of time, but I'll give you a real quick little inside story about that story. After that <laughs> happened, he and I post Super Bowl, we recorded the podcast. It was ridiculous. I don't remember it was like two, three, four. It was crazy how early in the morning it was, and we were sitting in the stadium. We're like overlooking the field, and it's just us and. Um, we're in the, the live suite, which is the hot nightclub, obviously in Miami, whatever. And I wanted to talk about it in that podcast and Therese did not. And we got into a pretty heated argument about it, like a really heated argument about it. Cause I was so angry. I really wanted to, to talk about it and he absolutely would not let me do it. And so I just, and that was the night I told him just so you know, I don't know when, but I'm going to tell this story. And he was like, Oh, okay. All right. All right. But I was like, you know, I don't know when it's going to come up, but it's going to come up someday and you should just know that. So, um, I didn't, I didn't, if he had not agreed to it, I probably would have never told the story, obviously, even after his passing, but you know, he knew I let him know. So, um, it was an unforgettable moment for sure. It was, it was, it was, it, it made me realize what a unexpectedly delightful human being he is. And I'll tell you, that is the perfect note to finish on. Charles, thank you very much for your time, brother. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. We really appreciate you coming on. You're welcome anytime. Absolutely. I'll officially christen you friend of the show right now. Um, awesome. It's, it's been great talking to you. It really has. Well, I will commit. I'm going to come back. Okay, we'll do this again sometime during the season. Yeah. And uh, we'll definitely – I enjoyed this. Thanks for having me, guys. I yeah. really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you for you the so support. Much, Charles. Yeah, thank you for the support. Thank you for the outpouring for Therese. I really appreciate that. Thank you for rocking the all juice 
Team <laughs> I appreciate that. That's awesome. Mine's in the laundry as we speak. And I'm starting to fit into it better. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting extra to, 20 pounds that's going that's to right, that's right. I'm starting to shave off the extra 20 pounds I gained and, and I'm fitting back into it a little bit better I think you know come September I'll be able to slide that thing on and wear it outside yeah, fantastic <laughs> okay um so to our listeners we'll be back sometime in the next couple of weeks I would say uh but for now this is Neil Tomo and Charles saying from one king to another thanks for your time <laughs>